we, we uh, are jumping back into Matthew's Gospel, having been away for about a year or so. Uh, we began back last week uh, as the, the Pharisees tested Jesus, saying, you can't really be the Messiah. Show us a sign if you're really the Messiah. And Jesus moves on uh, from dealing with the Pharisees last week to the, to the disciples uh, and asks us two huge questions. Uh, let's read Matthew 16, and I'm going to read from verse uh, 13. Let's hear what the Spirit has to say to his church. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Some people replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one, that he was the Christ. <clears throat> Let me pray for this once more, and then we'll look at this passage together. Our Lord Jesus, uh, you are the Son of God who came to earth to speak to us. And whilst we know you are more than a prophet, uh, we know that you are not less than a prophet too. You are the one who truly reveals God to us. And so we pray now uh, that you would speak to us. <clears throat> Might we hear your words. And by the power of your spirit, would you also give us hearts to receive those words with joy and faith. Speak to us, meet with us, bless us, we pray. We ask in your name. Amen. What's the most important question you've ever been asked? Most important question you've ever been asked. So, some questions are so important that they, they change the rest of your life, don't they? Uh, will you marry me? For those of you who are students, uh, for your first years, perhaps back in August, when the results came in, did I get in? Did I pass? What are my grades? Now, sister-in-law's just had a little baby. First question that the children ask, is it a girl or is it a boy? So some of these questions shape the direction of the rest of our life. And this morning, Jesus wants to ask you two questions that are of supreme importance. Questions that are, are more important even than, will you marry me? Uh, questions that will shape not just today and this afternoon and this week, but questions that will shape the rest of your life and, in fact, will shape your eternity. Questions, the answer to which, will shape what you are doing, what you're experiencing, what you are feeling in the year 3020, 4020 and 5020. Because you will be here. We are eternal beings, aren't we? I mean, you won't be here in Leeds. You won't be here in Woodhouse Community Centre. But you will exist. We all exist forever now. Souls are eternal. And it's this question that shapes everything from now on. Who do you say that I am? Verse 15. We're going to have two questions this morning, in fact. But there's the first. Who do you say that I am? That's the question Jesus is asking this morning. Who do you say that I am? The, the, the passage begins, Jesus is coming to the city, Caesarea Philippi. He's right on the northern edge of Jewish territory. 
And he asks, well, who are the people saying that I am? Who are the crowds? He's already dealt with the Pharisees and Sadducees. That was in the passage just above. We looked at that last week. Jesus knows what they think. They think that Jesus is some sort of imposter, some sort of false messiah, some sort of false prophet. But now he wants to know what do the normal people think? Who do they say I am? Verse 30. And the answer's coming. Well, some say you're John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the, the forerunner, the one who, uh, Jesus' cousin, the one who came before, who pointed the way towards Jesus. And some people thought that although John had been executed by Herod, that this was John the Baptist back. Uh, perhaps that's because Jesus and John began their ministries in exactly the same way. If you, if you went back to the beginning of Matthew's Gospel and read the first words of John the Baptist and the first words of Jesus in their public ministries, they're identical. So you can see why people might kind of relate them. Others say, well, no, he's Elijah. Uh, Elijah, uh, we're told in the Old Testament, uh, would come back just before the Messiah, just before God's great rescuer came to earth. Elijah, who was an Old Testament prophet, would, would come. Actually, as we'll see in a little bit later on in Matthew's Gospel in future weeks, Elijah came in the person of John the Baptist. But, so some people thought Jesus was the forerunner of the Messiah. Uh, others, well, others say Jeremiah, verse 14. I don't quite know exactly why they pick out Jeremiah rather than Isaiah or Ezekiel or another prophet. It's possible because there's a tradition, not in the Old Testament, so not in the Bible, but there was a tradition from some of the extra books that the Jews had uh, that Jeremiah was the prophet who'd hidden the tabernacle, the tent, that, that, the, you know, that before the temple that, that, that the Jews met God in. He'd hidden it in a cave along with the Ark of the Covenant. And so in their tradition, in their folklore, uh, some thought that one day Jeremiah would return and re build the, the, you know, the, the tabernacle, come back with the ark, or Jesus talk about tearing down his temple and building it up again. Maybe that had made something that he was Jeremiah. It's always the case. Uh, people are confused about who Jesus is, have different opinions as to who he is. I notice all those opinions are high opinions, aren't they? None of them are disparaging, none of them are rude, no, none, of the, none of the people are saying, well, he's a nobody, he's irrelevant. These are people who are essentially all saying he's a good man, a man of God. But it's possible to have a good opinion of Jesus that isn't good enough. A high opinion of Jesus that isn't high enough. That's the case with these people. And so Jesus zeroes in. Okay, that's who they say, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? It's you, plural, you disciples. Who do you say that I am? And that's a question for us this morning the most vital question, in fact, of the two that he asks. Who do you say that I am? And Jesus doesn't want to know who your mum thinks he is, or your dad thinks he is, or your daughter, or your son, or your brother, or your sister, or your friend, or your flatmate, or your course mate. He wants to say, who do you say that I am? And it's him who asks the question this morning. Uh, not merely... Uh, me, a uh, nobody, but Christ asks, who do you say that I am? Peter gets it. Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Christ. Uh, Christ is the Greek word, a bit like Messiah is the Hebrew word for anointed one. Uh, children, you might, if you ask mum and dad later, they might show you the video of the queen being crowned. When Queen Elizabeth became queen, she was anointed uh, and it's sort of the most sacred bit of the ceremony. The Archbishop of Canterbury put some oil on the Queen's head, and that is anointing her. Well, Jesus is 
God's anointed king, and the one he has appointed to be in charge of all humanity. Peter's picking up the Old Testament here. He knows that in the Old Testament, in the days of the Old Testament, God came to Israel and said, look, this man, David, who was the first great king of Israel, one of his descendants will one day rule, not just Israel, but the whole world. And so all the way through the days of the Old Testament, the Jews were waiting for this great king who was going to come and rescue them, sort out the bad guys, deal with all their problems, make the world all right again. As Jesus spoke in Caesarea Philippi, the Roman Empire was in charge of Israel, in charge of God's people. And the Jews knew what all was wrong, not all was right with the world. There was something wrong. And they were waiting for this rescuer. The expression's come into some modern language, hasn't it? You know, we look for the Messiah. Hey, Mourinho is the Messiah who's going to save English football or whatever. That Messiahs are rescuers. Christ's are rescuers. And Peter sees, yes, you are the ruler. It's an extraordinary thing to say in Caesarea Philippi. Even the name gives it away. It's this city on the uh, very north of Israel, but, but named after, well, named in part after Caesar, okay, the great Roman emperor. And Peter can see, no, he's not in charge. You are. You are God's king. I think that is why, just to deal with it now, in verse 20, uh, Jesus says, don't tell anyone yet that I'm the Christ. The Jews have all got all sorts of wrong expectation of what, if Jesus says, yes, I am the Messiah, which he does, that there's all sorts of wrong understandings the Jews will have. So for now, he wants to hold back the disciples from going and saying, look, we found the Messiah, we found the Messiah, we found the Messiah, because, well, because they need to understand what kind of Messiah he is. And that's what he'll unpack in the next um, few passages. So he's the Christ, but he's more than that. Peter doesn't just say you're the Christ, he says you are the son of the living God. Now, we don't know how much Peter understood what he was saying there. It is true that in the Old Testament, various people are called the son of God. Say, so David, King David was called the son of God. It was like a state, because you're the king, you're my son, God said. Didn't mean David was divine, just a human being. But, but you're my son. Or Adam was called the son of God. The first man was called the son of God. And it may be that that's all Peter is thinking when he says the words, you're the son of the living God. It may be he's just putting Messiah or Christ and, and son of God together, which would be right and fair enough. But we know that there is more truth to it than that. Matthew knows that. Matthew's already told us that Jesus will be called Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the Son of God in the sense that he is God. Sons are of the same nature as their father, aren't they? And we see that even just in the next verse. You see verse 17? Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Now, Bar-Jonah just means son of Jonah. I don't know why they don't translate it. Just an Arabic expression. You are Simon, son of Jonah. I'm James, son of Michael. You have the same nature as your father. If your dad's a human being, you're a human being. If your dad's a rabbit, you're a rabbit. Okay, that's how things work, isn't it? Uh, this morning, Henry, my little boy, was very pleased when my wife dressed him in a blue, blue and white check shirt. He, he looked at me and he said, like daddy. It's please, like daddy. Okay, sons are like their dads. The... When Jesus is called the son of the living God, we are being told that he is God. He is divine. Not just a teacher, not just a king, but divine. God in all the ways that God the Father is. God the Father knows all things. Jesus knows all things. God the Father is all-powerful. Jesus is all-powerful. Everything that is true of God is true of Jesus. He is the Son of the living God. And that is an extraordinary thing, that that is the, that is the person who has stood 
outside Caesarea Philippi. That is the person who has come to earth for us. Perhaps you're, you're not a Christian or you're investigating the Christian faith. You're not quite sure what you think about Jesus. Well, well first of all, this, this little passage, this question... And Peter's answer rules out a whole bunch of options, doesn't it? It rules out the option of saying, well, I like Jesus. He's a, he's a, he was a good teacher. Richard Dawkins, who, who's one of these atheists who leads the crusade against Christianity, will sell you a T-shirt on his website that says, Atheist for Jesus. No one has a bad word to say about Jesus. But lots of people want to say, well, he's, he's a good guy. Nice things to say about loving our neighbour and stuff. Like him. He's just not God. But we can't say that, can we? It was C.S. Lewis who, who put it really helpfully. Essentially, we can either say Jesus was mad, if he claims to be God, he's either mad, lots of people think they're God, it happens, or he was bad, he knew he wasn't, but he thought he could trick people, or he was telling the truth. What we can't do is just dismiss him as a good teacher. And so again, let me say to you, if you're someone who's considering the, the Christian faith, it's so good to have you with us here this morning, either in the, on, the, on the camera or in the, in the building. Can I encourage you to, to consider that question? Who do you say that Jesus is? That's what he asks you this morning. Who do you say that I am? You need an answer. And actually, this question, who do you say that I am, is a question that answers all our other questions. If we can get the answer to this question, all our other questions are answered. See, you may well have, many of us have all sorts of questions about the Christian faith. Why does God allow suffering? Why do you allow my friend to die and another to live? What about science and creation and dinosaurs? How do we know the Bible's reliable? What about sexual ethics and the kind of things that people uh, you know, debate today? All, all sorts of questions. See, if, if we can just get this question right, though, then all the others fall into place. If we can answer the question, who do you say I am? And if we answer it, you are the son of God, then all those questions... Well, they change entirely. See, our temptation is, isn't it, to, to come with these questions and say, look, Jesus, if you can answer my questions to my liking, then I might believe in you. Okay, give me a good enough answer to the dinosaur questions, the suffering questions. Uh, if your opinion on sex and sexuality and gender agrees with mine, then I, I might join your church. I might believe in you. But when we realise that Jesus is walking on earth saying, no, I am God, and ask us, who do you say I am, then, then the tables are turned. We mustn't come to Jesus and say, look, if you pass my criteria, if you agree with enough of my opinions, then maybe I'll join your club. No, he asks the question, who do you say I am? And if he is the son of God, then that means... We whether we get answers to all the other questions or not, we know that he is the one who holds the answers. He is the one who holds the truth. It, it means that actually, if my opinion on an issue and his disagree, I'm wrong. We live in society that tells us to follow our hearts, don't we? If you believe it, it's true for you. That is not true. If Jesus is the Son of God, then he knows best. Even about things that are controversial or difficult or unpopular in our society. Jesus would be unpopular in every society on earth, one way or another. Uh, in our society, sure, the clashes often come over sex and gender. And, but in other societies, they, they hate what he has to say about forgiveness. One of the early missionaries to the Vikings just, just, just couldn't get across to them 
that, that, that there was a God who forgave sinners. They just thought it was ridiculous. They love the stuff about all the power. Yes, we like Jesus on that stuff. Okay? Vikings, no problem with Jesus', Jesus stance that, only, that men should only marry women. Not a problem at all for the Vikings. But Jesus teaches that you forgive your enemies? That is insane. And so they've got no interest. It's just a very different society. Jesus clashes with all societies. But it's not us who ask the questions of Jesus. He asks them of us. And that is, the, that is the first question you must answer. Who do you say that I am? Perhaps you are a Christian. You're exhausted at the moment. It's been a tough year. Most of us, I think, spiritually are running on fumes. The tank is low for many of us. You see the good news here. The good news is not just that Jesus is God, but that God is like Jesus. See, if you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for a while, you're probably quite, quite used to trying to, to, to defend the idea that Jesus is God, not just a man. Yeah, everything I've said so far, yeah, fine, fine, I heard it before, great, nice and sound, thanks, Randy, but, but, but actually, what, what, is, what, is, what we need to hear is not just that Jesus fulfills all the criteria that make him God, so Jesus is all-knowing, Jesus is all-powerful, all the stuff we've already talked about. What is perhaps more striking, what we need to be reminded of week by week, is that God is like Jesus. So rather than just starting with this picture of God, he's all-powerful, he's almighty, this is true, and then say, all oh, that applies to Jesus, that is true, we can also be amazed to read through Matthew's Gospel and see what God is like. God is like Jesus. So when Jesus comes to the fearful and doubting and welcomes them, that is what God is like. When Jesus comes to the sick and broken and heals them, that is what God is like. When Jesus comes to sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors and feasts with them, forgives their sin, that is what God is like. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. He is the Son of God. If you're weary, do you see God saying to you this morning, this is what I am like. Go back and read Matthew's Gospel. It's a shame in a way that we jumped it back in at Matthew 16. We missed all the, well, it's been a long time at least, we've looked at all the first 50 chapters, we've seen all the richness of what Jesus has done. And that is what God is doing, not just a kind man, but God himself. Now for those of you who are perhaps, if you're brutally honest with yourself, being a bit lazy, spiritually drifting. Uh, you could nod along. Yeah, I believe Jesus is God, fine. But you hear the question? The question is, who do you say I am? That's what he's asking this morning. Not, not who do you think I was, but who do you say I am? Jesus is not just the saviour who died for you 2,000 years ago, and the guy who will return one day to take you to heaven. But he is the Lord of your life now, the Christ now, the King now. It's as if Jesus, when he goes to Caesar at Philippi, it's the equivalent of walking down the mile and standing outside Buckingham Palace and saying, who do you say I am? And people saying, you're the King. He's claiming lordship over this earth as well. I think that's why he does it in Caesarea. <laughs> Not Caesar, me. Are you living as if Jesus is a distant King, a distant Saviour? No, he's the Son of the living God. And he calls you to real faith in him uh, this morning. So there's the first question. How do you answer it? Who do you say I am? Not mum, not dad, not brother, not sister, not son, not daughter, not friend, not colleague, you. 
And if you can say that you are the Son of God, you're my Saviour, well then Jesus asks you a second question. Do you see what I'm doing? That's the second question for this morning. Do, do you see what I'm doing? I look down at me, verse 18. Do you see what I'm doing? I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. What am I doing? I'm building my church, says Jesus. If that is what I am doing now. In some ways it shouldn't be a surprise to us. Jesus has called himself the Son of Man. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Uh, the, the verse we read at the beginning of the service, where the Son of Man is this figure who comes before the ancient days, come before God, and is, the Son of Man is given authority over all peoples, he's given the kingdom. It's a picture of the ascension, when Jesus goes back up to heaven, and all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. But, but that passage, like, stupidly I didn't put it in a sheet, but that passage from Daniel 7, uh, it continues. Uh, and it tells us that this kingdom is not just for the king himself, but it's going to be shared with his people. Uh, so in Daniel 7, uh, the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. It's a kingdom that's going to be shared. And so that's what Jesus does. Yes, I am the king, but I've come to bring others into my kingdom. I'm building my church. So let's ask a number of questions of this, this church, this building. Uh, where is it going to be built? Well, on the rock. Verse 18. On this rock. What is the rock? Uh, there's a bit of a pun going on here. In, in Greek, Petros, Peter, Petros is the word for rock. So Jesus is sort of saying, you are rocky and on this rock I will build this church. But, but still, what, what does that mean? Um, one commentator said this is the most debated verse in the most debated chapter in all of Matthew's gospel, in the history of interpretation. And, and if you've been a Christian a while or been around church things, you might know that, that, that in the Roman Catholic Church, they would look here and say, look, here we go. Here's the foundation of the Pope. Peter is the first Pope. Uh, he is the man on whom the rest of the church is going to be built. He is the one who can let you into heaven or, or close the gates of heaven. That's why you get all those folksy pictures of St. Peter at the gates of heaven with keys to, you know, why, you know shall I let you in or not? It's all nonsense. Uh, Jesus is not saying, you, Peter, all alone, are going to be in charge of everything from now onwards. Still less is he saying, you'll be in charge, Peter, and then you can hand over to someone else, and someone else, and someone else next, how many thousand years. Interestingly, even Cardinal Ratzinger, who became Pope, he's now the retired Pope, even he admitted, before he became Pope, that you can't get the, the doctrine of the Pope just from the Bible. And then he became Pope. <laughs> uh, this is not the beginning of, of, of the papacy. Uh, but, as Protestants, as those who, who hold the, the Bible in, in high authority, we don't need to go to ludicrous extremes to, to avoid Jesus saying that, that Peter is the rock. Some people try to say, well, it's not Peter, it's Peter's words that the church is built on. Well, it's just doing gymnastics that are not necessary. No, the church is built on Peter. Not Peter alone, Peter and the other apostles too. So in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 2.20, Paul says um, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Or in Revelation 21, where we get this picture of the heavenly Jerusalem. Uh, we read in verse 14 that, that this pretty heaven, the city of heaven, is built on foundation stones, and on the foundation stones are carved the names of the apostles. Why? Well, because it's through them that Christ builds the church, through their preaching, through their words, ultimately. In other words, this isn't Pope Peter, but pointing Peter. Peter as he points to Christ. Yes, as Peter becomes the, 
he is the chief of the apostles for the first half of the book of Acts at least as he points to Christ well it is that gospel pointing which builds the church interestingly it's in Peter's letter um, later on in scripture uh, that, it, that he says that we all are like living stones building the temple of the house of God uh, so where will the church be built? Well, on the foundation laid by the apostles. And what would it look like? Well, it will look triumphant. It will look all-powerful. Do you see that? The gates of hell, or literally Hades, will not prevail against it. It's not the normal word in the New Testament for hell there. It's this, the word for de- the place of the dead, Hades. Um, but however you understand it, that the idea is, is clear, isn't it? Nothing will be able to destroy my church, says Jesus. The church will conquer. It is an army that will not lose. It's a strange picture, the gates of hate. Why, why are the gates of death uh, that, that won't prevail against us? As if gates are going to attack us. Well, I think it's because in, in Jesus' day, you know, cities often had walls around them. You can go somewhere nicer than Leeds now, like York, and you'll see the city walls uh, and still at the, the gates. And in Jesus' day, at least, that the military plans were often cooked up in the gates. Imagine that the gates were the towers and the sort of barracks. That's where the plans were formed. So Jesus is saying, look, the plans of death, sin, the devil, Hades, they will not overcome the church. No one will conquer. The church will be triumphant. Uh, G.K. Chesterton once said uh, that five times in history the church has gone to the dogs and each time it's a dog that ended up dead. There are times when the church looks so weak but even when it looks like it's about to die, it just rises again because ultimately it's got a God who knows the way out of the grave. Well, Thomas Jefferson, president of the USA, in 1822 said this, by the time of my death, or rather he predicted, he said, by the time of my death, there will not be a man left in America who isn't a Unitarian. In other words, who hasn't given up belief in, in the gospel and Jesus being God. And Jefferson said that, he said, because the progress we're making, scientific progress we're making, and the thought progress that's going on, the... the, the, the the way we've understood more about the Bible and how it's not really true. But by the time of my death, there'll be no one left believing all that nonsense. 1822. How wrong can you be? People are always saying the church will die. Okay, as we get cleverer, as we get more scientific, as we get more technologically advanced, people will stop believing. It is never true. It is never true. The church will keep growing because Christ will keep building. There's not much power in us. There's not much power in this room. There's so much power in the church in Leeds. I don't know how many Christians there are in Leeds. Not that many, if we're being really honest. Not compared to the population size. But the church will keep growing. I'm sure at the moment it might be growing faster in Asia, in South America, in Africa, than it is in Europe. With no specific promises for our little village, or our little town, or our little congregation. But the church that Jesus built, it will never be conquered. It will continue to grow. In the face of opposition, of course, the gates of Hades will attack. You can expect life as a Christian to be marked. All of hell will throw itself at the church. But the church will stand because Jesus, or Jesus is the warrior who defends it. Where would it grow? Where would it be built, sorry? On the foundation of the apostles. What would it look like? Triumphant. How would it grow? What's a weapon? Children, what if you see this? Okay, if the church is an army, a triumphant army, what weapon does Jesus give the church in verse 19? Must be a sword to conquer the bad guys, a gun to mow them down, a shield to protect against Satan. No, what is the weapon? 
peace. That's what Jesus says. Peter, all of hell is going to throw itself at you. But don't worry, you'll conquer because I'm going to give you a set of keys. You'll be fine. Strange, isn't it? Strange thing to give to a church. What does he mean? What do keys do? Keys open and shut things, don't they? That's why Jesus says, uh, goes on to say that in verse 19, uh, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, or whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Keys open and shut doors. They let you in, or they shut you out. So, so what the apostles do is going to open the kingdom of God to some people, open the church to some people, and shut the doors to, to others. How? What's, what's he on about? Well, I put on, if you've got a service sheet, I, I put down there one, one classic answer to this question. What are the keys of the kingdom? It's from Heidelberg Catechism. What are the keys of the kingdom? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and church discipline. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is open to believers and closed to unbelievers. Preaching and church discipline. Now, why do they say that? Okay, that that's what these guys say. And this has been a traditional kind of Protestant Bible-believing view of what, what Jesus means by the keys. It's preaching and church discipline. Why? Well, think about it. How, how is the kingdom of God open to people? How do people come into God's kingdom, the church? Well, when the door is opened by the gospel being preached. As Peter on the day of Pentecost preaches the first great Christian sermon, 3,000 people come in. Okay. He unlocks the door, looses the door, and 3,000 people are saved because he's, he's faithfully preached Christ's words. Uh, in Matthew 23, Jesus criticizes the Pharisees. Uh, verse 13, he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Now, how do the Pharisees shut heaven? They've not got any spiritual powers, have they, to get up there and block us? It's not like God said to the Pharisees, Hey, tell you what, you can be in charge of who gets eternal life. It's pitch lapish. But the Pharisees shut the doors of heaven because they won't preach the gospel. They'll preach legalism. Do your best. Earn your way in. And so you shut the doors, says Jesus. Preaching, in other words, is what opens the doors. It shuts them too in the sense of, it says to people, if you will not believe, you will not go in. If you will not trust Jesus, you will not enter heaven. But there's also discipline. Again, Jesus uses this language explicitly. Uh, if you look at chapter 18 and verse 15. Jesus deals with the situation. He's talking about the church now. If your brother sins against you, first of all, you go one-on-one -on -one and say, look, you've, you've sinned, and then you go with a friend, and then eventually, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, an outsider. Put them out of the church. It's quite shocking for Jesus to say, isn't it? But it, it? The idea is this. If someone is doing something so scandalously ungodly in the congregation. Yeah, we all sin, and then we repent, and we confess, and that, thank God the church is for sinners. But, but let's say one person in church started sleeping with someone else, someone else's wife, and, and said, I don't care, I'm just going to keep doing it, but I'm okay because I'm a Christian, I'll be forgiven, I'm just going to keep sinning. We'd say, no, no, brother, you must stop. And they'd say, no, I'm not going to. So two of you go, no, you've got to stop. No, I'm not going to. I'm going to keep cheating on my wife, sleeping with someone else's wife, I'm just going to keep going. Well, Jesus says, eventually you have to say, no, the kingdom of heaven is shut to you. You are out of the church. Okay, you're no longer to share in the Lord's Supper. This meal says you're part of us. And do you see the language used? Chapter 18 and verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed 
in heaven. I tell you, if two of you agree on anything, on earth, sorry, about anything they ask, it will be done for them by Father in heaven. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I'll be with them. He's talking there not just about the disciples, the apostles, but the church. Hear the binding, loosing language again? Church discipline is another way that people are brought in or put out of the, the church. And what Jesus is saying here, primarily to the apostles, although it's inherited down the centuries by, the, by ministers in a secondary sense, by elders, by those who look after churches. But what Jesus is saying is that this comes with heaven's authority. As long as you are being faithful to my words, the foundation laid by the apostles, okay, but to Jesus' words, uh, that when a minister preaches, or someone preaches the gospel to you, they're preaching Christ's words, only if they're preaching Christ's words, then it's as if heaven is open to you. Christ is speaking to you. That's why the question this morning isn't a minister saying to you, what do you think of Jesus? But Jesus saying to you, who do you say I am? Calvin put it like this. It's wonderful comfort to godly souls that the news of salvation brought to them by some little mortal man is ratified by God. You will hear the gospel preached to you by some little mortal man. Week in, week out, from behind this tin pot music stand, in a, let's face it, not particularly beautiful building in Leeds, a little mortal man will say little mortal words to you. But, but as long as they are faithful to the Bible, to Christ's words, then it is as if Christ, as if heaven is speaking to you and opening heaven to you and saying, come to me. It's Jesus saying, come to me. I am the Son of God. Again, if, if, if you sin so greatly, if, if you're the one having that affair and you're refusing to repent, then when the church says, I'm sorry, but this, you, you're out of the church, then again, as long as they're being faithful to Scripture, then, then as if heaven is saying that to you. Not because there's magical powers in ministers or elders or anything like that at all, no. It's because they're applying God's word. They're using those keys that have been given to the church. In other words, it is Christ who is at work. What was his promise? I will build my church. Not you will build it for me. I will build it. Just me. Just me. I will build. He is the one who's active now. What is Jesus doing now? He is building his church. He's not asking you to build it for him. He's not gone back to heaven so he can put his feet up. And no, He is building now. He is preaching his gospel through all sorts of missionaries and ministers. Now that's why the verse we missed in the middle, verse 17, when Peter gets the answer right, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Verse 17, blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. If, if you understand who Jesus is, if you say, yes, he is the Son of God, it's because God has opened your eyes to see that. You haven't found him. You haven't been more spiritual or smart than other people. He has opened your eyes. You can find real comfort in that. Some little mortal man or woman has explained the gospel to you. But God, heaven has been at work bringing you into Christ's church, this church that will never be defeated. You, you are in the kingdom of the Son of the living God. So death and hell can't touch you. Your sin can't touch you. Nothing can separate you from eternal life because Christ is the king of this kingdom. There is no gap, of course, between believing in Jesus and entering the church. I read a church report a couple of years ago now from one network 
where the guy was saying, we saw 4,500 people converted over the last 20 months, and one-seventh of them joined the church. In fact, you did not, you did not see 4,500 people converted if only one-seventh of them then joined the church. If you believe Jesus is the Son of God, that brings you into the church. It'll be expressed in a local congregation. The two go together. Because those two questions go together. Who do you say I am? And do you see what I'm doing? If you answer, you are the Son of the living God. And then the second question, well, yes, I see what you're doing. You're building your church. You've brought me in, made me a living stone. And you've done it by grace alone. And therefore we have to ask ourselves, will my life be about the same things as Jesus' life is now? Every day, as Jesus gets up, as it were, if you'll pardon the expression, he is about one main thing, building the church. Like every day as we get up, well, we've got to ask ourselves, are our diaries aligned with Jesus' diary? Are our priority lists aligned with Jesus' priority lists? It's not just a summons to work harder but as a summons by Christ to recognise who he is, recognise what God is like, to join him in this kingdom, this kingdom of safety and peace and blessing, and pray with him uh, that the gates of Hades will not overcome it, that it will extend to the ends of the earth, and that many more men, women and children will find life within it. Let's pray. Our Father God, we praise you so much that we don't have to find you, but that you sent your Son to find us. Uh, we thank you that Jesus is the Son of the living God, and therefore as we look at him we can see uh, what our God is truly like. We pray therefore for open eyes uh, to see more clearly, for certain hope to know that his kingdom will never be conquered, for peace of mind to know that in those walls we have total security and safety. Uh, we pray, uh, our Father, uh, that the kingdom will advance here in Leeds, uh, here in the United Kingdom, uh, that many more will come to recognise Christ as your Saviour, the Son of the living God. So though we are weak, uh, we know that he is mighty. Oh Lord Jesus, build your church, we pray, for your own glory's sake. Amen.